Anyway, hopefully everybody is in Malachi chapter 6, verse 8. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we can meet here. That maybe not in person, maybe we're not able to see each other face to face, Lord. But Lord, we are still one. We're still one family this morning. We're one body. We're one soul. Because we belong to you. And Lord, that you died for our sins. And Lord, that the tomb is empty. And so we are a church. And we are a church, Lord, that comes to you this morning as we look at your word. And we want to hear from you. And we know that your spirit is still working and moving. And I pray, Father, Lord, that we would be attentive to what you have for us this morning. And I thank you so much, Lord, that you are faithful and that we can come to you no matter where we're at at any time. And so we do that as a needy people. We come to you, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would bless and you would bless those who have tuned in and bless their homes, that you bring protection to this place. And Lord, that you would bring protection to our homes. So, Lord, we just ask that you would do an amazing, wonderful work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Micah 6.8, it's simply one verse. It simply says, Who has shown you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, Micah 6.8 It is what scholars and a lot of commentaries refer to as a summary verse. And all of of that a summary verse is that it packs a whole lot of truth that you see in one verse that you also see throughout the Bible. And that's what Micah 6.8 is. And Micah 6.8, it's very impactful. It could be familiar for a lot of you. Perhaps you know this verse. But it's very impactful. It's very practical. It's very insightful. And it's a great verse to memorize. And here's the thing. It's not complicated. It's not a complicated verse. And it's a verse that brings me comfort, especially in the days that we live, especially at a time when our lives and and the world seems to be getting more complicated and confusing. I was reading an article in a um, write-up from a the American interest. And they took a survey, and actually the survey uh, was taken along with the Associated Press, and here's what they found. Six in ten say issues facing the United States are more complicated than a decade ago. And seven in ten believe because things have turned more complicated that people's judgments have been blurred because of current troubles. People's judgments have been blurred because of current troubles, 7 and 10 believe it. And the director of of Indiana University for Civic Literacy, he helped conduct this survey with the Associated Press, and, and, and he said this, not only are we dealing with more complex environment, we are dealing with a more ambiguous environment. People want this is good and this is bad, and increasingly we live with There's black, and there's white, and there's a whole lot of gray. And really, um, here's the good news for you and me, those of us that are in Christ this morning, that it doesn't have to be that way. That as Christians, 
we have the solid word of God that we live by, and, and that brings me comfort as well. And that we could be assured that the promises of God are for us this morning, just like they will be tomorrow morning, just like they have been. And they, he is always faithful to those things that he tells us. And we know that brings me comfort. And we often have heard Pastor Jeff say, and, and, and I think most of us agree, that we are in the last days. And we've been talking about the last days, if you've been a Christian like I have for a while, you know, 35 years ago, we talked about the last days. And a lot of times we have a tendency to talk about maybe wars overseas or one world governments or the Antichrist or whatever the case is. But the thing of it is that we never talked about that we're really starting to talk about more and more that those events, as we get closer to the soon return of Jesus Christ, that those things that are happening in the world are starting to come into our homes and coming into our homes in a very personal way. And we see more and more of that. And see, God's word gives us comfort in those things. And these verses bring, this verse brings me comfort as we live in a complicated and confusing world. And may we never forget this, that God wants the very best for us and he gives us this word to instruct us. As Paul would tell Timothy, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable, profitable for doctrine and correction and instruction and righteousness, equipping us for every good work. And of course, the book of Hebrew tells us that God's word is powerful and it is living. And it's sharper than any to its sword in the discernment of the thoughts and intent of the heart. And that's for us, that's a promise for us today. That God's word is true. And it's not complicated or confusing. So Micah, who's this prophet Micah? Well, Micah lived 750 years before Jesus' earthly ministry. And he would prophesy to the northern kingdom, which was Israel. And he would also prophesy to the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And both the people and the religious leaders, they weren't doing well. They weren't doing well at all. And there was lots of immorality and idolatry. And the religious leaders, they were corrupt. They were ripping the people off. There was all kinds of carnality. And even though Micah proclaimed a message of judgment is coming, the primary call of the prophet was to speak forth the heart and the mind of the Lord. And to remind them what God required of them and what was pleasing to the Lord. So if you were one that would ask a religious leader at that time, if you could find one, but if you were to ask them, what does the Lord require of you? Probably that religious leader would say, well, according to the rabbinical teachings and traditions, there are 630 specific commandments given in the law. And if any of you are like me, I hear that and I think, you know, that needs to be simplified. And Micah in this summary verse, what he does is he brings it down. And he brings it down to three virtues, which to us, you know, instructs us today. And no matter where we are in our Christian walk in the last year or months or days or whatever, whether we've been going through a lot of trials whether we've just been kind of routine and we're just raising our kids in the way of the Lord, no matter where we are in these things in our lives, 
that we can rest in the fact that the Lord still wants to do a work in us. And we're still here as a body and as a church. And Paul says that, you know, I'm confident in this, that he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete that. And so we can be confident that he still wants to use us. And so we still want to walk. We want to walk forward. We want to do that walk. We want to do what is right. And so here he says three virtues that we are to do. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And these three things will have a powerful impact on our Christian walk. So as we look at these three virtues things, as we walk in them, and as you do these things, you're going to do well. So the first one that we see here, to do justly. And to do justly simply means to do what is right. The Lord requires us to do justly, or you could say that we are to be ones that have integrity in our Christian lives. We live in a world where there's a lot of compromise and where there is a lot of pressure to compromise. So it's important that we hold fast to the truth of Scripture and we live our lives as a testimony of a transformed life. And we don't want to be called into questions whether we belong to the Lord. So we are living testimonies of God's work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know as we simply do things right, you know, usually two things can happen. That we don't, one, firstly, we don't always get noticed. We don't always get rewarded. Sometimes we think that things don't work out when we do things right on this side of heaven. It reminds me of a story when Becca and I were first married a long time ago, that that first summer that we were married, that we, uh, we didn't have a dryer. We had a wash machine, but we didn't have a dryer. And so my wife, she would uh, sit, uh, put the laundry out in the clothes a line out in the backyard, and I would work during the summer to try to get a dryer before, you know, to pay for one before the summer came. And there was a neighbor that had a tree in the back uh, behind us, and he had a big tree, and it had a big hollow main branch, and there was a beehive in it. So we'd have bees kind of buzzing around in our backyard a little bit as well. But he wanted to remove the tree, and so he talked to me about it, and I said, you know, you probably need to, but here's the thing. Call a beekeeper and get those bees out of there. You want to save them. You want to do what is right, you know, when you take this tree out, and that would be to get a beekeeper to get those bees out. And so he would do that. But before he could do that, I remember I was putting on one morning a pair of jeans, and Becca had had the laundry out the day before, and I'm putting on one of those jeans. Well, the day before, one of those bees have gotten down into those pair of jeans. And then when my wife went out and folded up the jeans, she didn't know. So that bee had been in that pair of jeans for, you know, all night. And I put those jeans on, and I couldn't get them off fast enough. I must have got stung five times before I could get them off, you know. Sometimes things happen. And we do what is right, and we still get, end up getting stung. But here's the thing. The Lord is faithful. And Hebrews 6.10 tells us, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of ledge, which you have shown towards his name. And even if nobody else notices, and even if it may not be a big deal in the eyes of others when you do things right, 
when you do things justly, you're going to be rewarded in heaven. And secondly, that people will be watching you and they will be seeing your walk. So when I think of integrity, when I think about doing things right, I can't help to think of that Paul's prayer to the Philippian believers in chapter 1. Paul, he would always, when he write an epistle, he would always, you know, greet the believers in most of his epistles. He would encourage them. He really loved the Philippian believers. And they were very beloved by him. He would say, you're my beloved, and you're my joy, and you're my crown. And he would be writing to them, and he would encourage them. And whenever he would do that in his epistles, he always would stop at some point. And it seemed like Paul would always have to break out in prayer. And he does that with the Philippian believers. So in chapter 1 of verse 9, that's what he does. And he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things which are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So Paul, he's praying for these believers that he wants to see love abound more. And the Philippians, they already had some measure of love. It was there, but it's, what he was praying, Paul, was is a matter of getting more. It's a prayer that God would increase it, and, he would, and that love would be anchored and controlled on knowledge and discernment. So in other words, Paul would say, I want your love to be controlled in conviction based on God's truth. So love more, and then he uses this term, that you. And that term in that prayer is, means a progression. So love more, that you would seek what is excellent. Or in other words, you'd be able to determine what is most important in your spiritual life. To set proper value on things. Or to know what is val valuable in your spiritual walk. What really matters. So we are to love, he said, what was his prayer? Which will lead to pursue excellence. And then he throws another, that you. So that you may be, or for the purpose of, being a person of integrity. A, a person who is sincere and without offense. Now, that word sincere, it's an interesting word. It has an interesting meaning. During Paul's day, of course, uh, they made pots and they made bowls and cups and plates out of clay. So you would have a potter who, of course, would put it on a wheel. He would uh, form it and fashion it. And then when he was done, he would bake it or he would fire it. Most of us know what that procedure is. And so... But if he were to take that cup or, or that, that bowl or whatever he was making, and if there was some kind of impurity within that clay, sometimes what it would do is it would cause a, a crack in it. And if he had a crack in a bowl or a cup, you know, he couldn't sell it or he, he shouldn't sell it. I mean, it would become useless after a while because it would crack and break apart. But if you had a dishonest potter, Sometimes what they would do is they, they would try to cover up that crack. And they would try to cover up that crack with some wax and then paint over it. And so if you were in the market, if you were a wise buyer, what you would do is you would look for that. And how you would look for that is you would take that cup or that pitcher, you would hold it up into the sun, you would turn it. And if there was a crack that was covered up by wax by that potter, 
then you would be able to see it as he held it up to the sun. It would be able to, you would be able to be detected that the, you otherwise couldn't if you didn't do that. And you might be thinking, Pastor John, what are you talking about? What has that got to do with integrity? Well, Paul is saying, don't have your life covered up in the wax of hypocrisy. That's the idea. We don't want to be ones leading people to believe we are doing good in our Christian walk when we aren't. And that we have a bunch of cracks in our lives. I'm not talking about those times that we'll fail. We all have times where we fail. That's when we want to get back to the Lord as quickly as possible. But we all do, you know, we all do that on this side of heaven. But we want to be ones that pursue holiness and righteousness and goodness. We want to be more like Christ. And we want to move forward like that. But there are those who are continually, they have cracks in their lives. And they try to cover it up. And, and their cracks, you know, they try to cover their cracks with religiosity or by playing Christian on Sundays. And when things get heated in their lives, they melt. And the cracks are revealed. And they hurt their witness because of sin in their lives. Paul's prayers for integrity that touches every part of our lives. That we aren't once hiding some sin, some flaw that we try to always cover up. And when the testing comes, we melt and fall apart and we become a crackpot. We want life, we want a life that others can look at and say he or she is real about their relationship with Jesus Christ. Not perfect but they're real and they're not fake and phony about it. And they take their walk seriously. And, and he says, and they're without offense. They're blameless. They're not causing other people to stumble. And Paul, not only would he pray that for the Philippian believers, but he would go on and tell them that he says that you be ones who shine as light in the world, holding fast the word of life. And we know that we are in the world, aren't we? We certainly see it and feel it, hear about it, the things in the world. It's in our face all the time. We are in the world. The Lord has sent us out into the world. But we are not to love the world. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said that to see a ship in the sea is a beautiful thing. But to see the sea in the ship is not a good thing. To see a Christian in the world is the way it's supposed to be. To see the world in a Christian is not a good thing. So I have a question for you this morning, Calvary Chapel. What does it look like when the world observes us? Jesus would say that we are a light of the world. Paul would say that we are to be light as well. And the thing about light, you don't hear light. You see it. So what does it look like in your life? You know, during World War II, if you know the history of World War II, you know that at the beginning of the war, before the United States got into it, that the Germans would bomb London. They called it the Blitz. And during that time that they would have total blackout, they would have to. And British intelligence at that time, this is what they figured out, this is what they discovered that those German pilots during the blackout would be able to see light as they're up in the air. They would be able to see light as far away as 10 miles away. A light as small as a flashlight or a lantern. 
And they would be able to see that in that total, uh, you know, um, darkness. And we live in a world where it's getting darker and darker. And understand this. Here's the thing what it means for us. The, the darker it gets out there, your testimony, your walk, your shining, you're living out your Christian walk with integrity. Your light will be seen and it will be seen and it will shine brighter as we get darker. And what you're doing as you shine in a dark world is you're offering the word of life to those that you're around. And I know that we are around a lot of unbelievers, whether they're in our families or those who are at work or school, neighborhood, or whatever. And how you live your life is so, so important. Never disregard that because people are watching. And those who don't believe, they, as they watch you, did you know that you're the only Bible that they see and read? You're the only one. And so we want to be ones that are sincere without offense and have integrity to do what is right. So back to Micah, what does God desire? What does he require of you? Well, to do justly. And secondly, to love mercy. So as we do what is right, we don't want to become ones that stick up our noses and say, why isn't this person doing better? Why can't people do as good as I do? Listen to what God says. Do justly, but love mercy. In other words, do what is right, but when it comes to others, look for every opportunity to show mercy. And I'll speak for myself. That can be hard sometimes, especially if somebody just rubs me the wrong way or hurts me. That can be a hard thing to do. I kind of like what John Corson says in his commentary. He says, there's a truck driver, he comes into a truck stop and he's enjoying a breakfast and suddenly these three, three big guys riding on motorcycles come bursting through the door and they want to look for trouble. They're looking for a fight. So they grab the plate and they begin scarfing down what was left of this truck driver's breakfast. But the truck driver, he just watched them and when he was done, when they were done, he just calmly paid the bill and walked out the door. So these three bikers, they say to the waitress, can you believe that guy? I mean, you know, he's not much of a man, is he? And you know, the waitress just says, maybe not, as she looked out the window, but he's not much of a truck driver either. He just ran over three motorcycles. You know, that can be sometimes our nature, but here's the thing, it's not God's. He wants us to love mercy and be ones that take every opportunity to share it and live in it. And here's the thing. Mercy is an attribute filled with loveliness. To say that someone is merciful is to pay them the highest compliment because mercy conveys the idea of being loving and being compassionate and being tender and forgiving and caring. And again, Paul, encouraging the Philippians Christians, he says in chapter 4, verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. And that word gentleness can be translated friendliness or goodwill or big-heartedness. 
So it's being someone, as I define it, of not being in a hurry to stomp on someone or not being in a hurry to get in an argument. And we are to show someone or we are to show gentleness in the failures of others and not be offended or unkind or bitter because the grace of God rules in our hearts and lives. Paul says that we are to be known for this to who? Just those that we like? Are we to be known to, uh, for this to just those who in the church? No, he says to all men, all women, everybody. So you might be thinking again, Pastor John, what has gentleness got to do with mercy? Well, gentleness always attaches itself to grace, and it especially attaches itself to mercy. I like what Proverbs 3.3 says, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Truth is important, and nothing is as important as divine truth. But here in my heart, there are going to be at times nothing more harsh than truth without mercy because there can be no grace and there can be no patience and there can be no gentleness and we have to speak truth in love but binding it to truth is a heart of mercy God is true and God is merciful so may we always have a passion for truth we never want to compromise on that but as we have a passion for truth Alongside of that, may we also say, Lord, in my passion for the truth, may I not be one who is lacking in gentleness towards those who don't know you. May I not be one who is lacking in gentleness towards those who don't understand you who, or who haven't grown up in you. Our witness to others should always be truth, tempered always with mercy. And so as we show our gentleness to all, we're not going to be in a hurry to stomp on somebody or to start an argument. So back to Micah. What does the Lord require of you, he says, but to do justly and to love mercy and then thirdly to walk humbly with your God. If I were to mention the name Bobby Leach, I think most of you have probably said I've never heard of that name. Well, in 1911, Bobby Leach became the first man to survive tumbling over Niagara Falls in an apple barrel. And for the next six months after that accomplishment, he would go around the country touring and bragging about what he had done. But after six months, he had to stop touring because what happened is he slipped on a banana peel and he broke his back. Proverbs says, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And for you and I, it is so important as Christians that we understand the need of choosing humility in our lives. You know, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus, he has to give his disciples a lesson on humility. And these disciples have been with Jesus 24-7 for the last two plus years at this point. They had been given authority to represent Jesus, to proclaim the gospel from town to town. They were given power to cast out demons, to heal diseases. They'd been given an immense amount of truth. 
And add to that that Peter, James, and John had an incredible experience. They were taken up on the high mountain with Jesus, and it was there that Jesus pulled aside his flesh and that he was transfigured, and they saw the shining glory of God, and they would meet Moses and Elijah. And so they would come down from that mountain, and they would meet with the other disciples, and what's going on? They're having the same old argument. Which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And I can imagine, you know, they're sitting around the campfire, maybe at night, and they're having this argument, and it would look like this. Well, do you think that I'll be the greatest? Well, I don't know, but were you taken up on the mountain like I was? Well, yeah, maybe not, but how many did you heal, heal at the last village? Oh, yeah? How often do you get to sit next to Jesus at dinner? They lived in a world of ranking, and it's true for the world today. And sadly, it's even true for the church. These guys were walking in pride. And the dispute continued in Luke 9 as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, he knows what their thoughts are, and he knows what their hearts are. So what he does is he takes a child, and he sits him by him, and he says, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be the greatest. Boy, does that go against the world's thinking. He who is least among you, this is the one who is great. And all that thinking that was in the heart of those disciples that told them, you know, and the world thinks this way. Great is the flashy. Great is the most dynamic. Great is the biggest and the baddest and the most attractive. And Jesus takes their thinking and flips that world philosophy on its head and says, the least is the greatest. And if you want to have a battle for the greatest, it must become a battle for humility because the lowliest is the greatest. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, I'm afraid, you know, in the Corinthian church, you know, they were a church that was always doing things wrong. And he was always having to bring correction to them. And he says in 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm afraid when I come, I'm going to find strife and jealousy and anger and tempers and disputes and gossip and arrogance, all because of pride. Do you know what makes me, my heart, glad to be a part of this church? Is so many of you. So many of you, as we see on Sundays, as you see as we gather together, whether it's men's study or another study, but definitely on Sunday morning, that you guys come in and you can see that you love each other. And you want to share with each other and encourage each other that you're bound together by that love. And it's really so evident. I had somebody tell me not too long ago, they said, you know what? You guys at Calvary Chapel, Chapel, you love well. You love well. And that's a great compliment to you, to all of you that come here. And if in the last year we've had people come into this place that hadn't been to church in a long time, some of them haven't been to church Ever. And if they were to come into this place and see that we're a group of people 
that are angry and we have tempers and there's disputes and there's gossip and there's arrogance, you know what? They would recognize that because they see it all the time out in the world. And it's so incredible that when they do come into this place, what they see is you guys loving each other and lifting each other up and praying for each other and serving each other, not only here but outside these four walls. And it's just a wonderful thing. Paul would say to the Philippian believers again, he said, strive together for the sake of the gospel. Don't compete against each other. You have the same mind, maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind that each, each of you regard others more important than yourself. And then Paul goes on and he shows them the perfect example, which, of course, is Jesus Christ. James 4, 6, 6 says, God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. Jesus reminded the disciple in Luke 9 that humility is equal to greatness in his kingdom and that humility is in the heart of those who serve others and humility is in the heart of those who die to self. And humility is in the heart of those who honor and love that believer they struggle with. And humility is not only a virtue of love, but of grace and mercy as well. So here's the thing. If you think you're walking down a path of pride, remember Bobby Leach. Because you don't know what banana peel is ahead of you. So Micah, he simplifies it. He goes from 630 commands to three. And if that's still too many, Jesus gives us the ultimate summary verse, and he brings it down to two commands, and it's about love. The religious leaders there in Matthew 22, they're challenging Jesus. Pastor Jeff will be that in that in a couple weeks, but they're trying to discredit him with the people. And a lawyer of the Pharisees asked Jesus a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it says when Jesus gave that answer that no man dare ask him any more questions. We are to love the Lord with our whole heart and with our whole soul and with our whole mind. The greatest virtue of any Christian is always love. It is always love. And God wants his people to have their love, their whole being, love in him, and his desire for us, that not only that we love him, but we love others. That's how the world knows that we belong to him, as we see in John chapter 13. This commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then that the world would know that you are, belong to me. You, be, you are my disciples. It's for your love for one another. And we are promised by God's word that God's love is shed abroad into our hearts as we become believers. He would tell the, Thales the Thessalonians, he would say that the Spirit teaches you to love. And like the Philippian church, the love is there. My prayer is that our love would abound more and would abound more. God's desire for us is that we love him. 
a relationship with him. It's a wonderful thing. That's Christianity. And it's a love that seeks fellowship with him. And it's a love that meditates on his glorious word. And it's a love that trusts in his promises. And it's a love that grieves over our sin. And it's a love that looks to heaven. And it's a love that reaches out to a lost and dark and dying world. So what does it mean to be a Christian? To love God and to love others. To be conformed to his inches. And my prayer for this church is that we would do justly. That we would love mercy. And that we would be ones that would choose humility to be on display in our lives. And that our love for God and others would touch a world that is complicated and it is blurred. And that we would give them a clear picture of what God can do in the lives of those who love them. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your incredible insight and your instruction to us. And we know, Father, Lord, that you still desire to work in our lives, that we can be confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's for us. And as, as Travis said during worship, that you have a purpose and a plan for all of us, Lord. And that we have the hope of the soon return of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that brings us hope and it should bring us comfort and that your word does that as well. And Lord, I pray that I know it hasn't been easy for many of us. So I pray again, once again, for your protection. Lord, that you protect this place of the virus, you protect our homes from it. Lord, that we would meet with gladness, knowing that you are with us all the days of our lives. I pray, for Father, whatever touch we need, whether it's physical or spiritual, that, Lord, you would meet our needs where we're at that you would give us wisdom and discernment in the days in which we live, that we would know what those things are that are excellent. Father, I want to pray for Ashley and Luke. I pray that um, as, as they would, um, Lord, that you would touch them and, and, Lord, that their tests would come back negative for COVID and they'd be able to come back on time. And, Lord, that, um, Lord, you just minister to them where they're at, that... You would minister to um, Pastor Jeff and as he quarantines himself, Lord, as he, Lord, is away from the people this weekend, but his love is still there for him. I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would bring protection in that area as well. I pray, Father, Lord, for this place that we would be known by our light that shines in the darkness. Lord, guide us as, you know, through the week. We just ask again that you would work in our lives in a very special way and to lift us up. We're so thankful that we got the promise of heaven. And so use us, Lord, in a mighty way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Have a wonderful week. Again, we look forward to seeing you next Sunday.